Thanks so much, Tom. Please allow me to add my warm welcome to all of you, whether you've joined us here in person or whether you're worshiping with us online today. It's such a joy to be able to come together today and to look into God's word together. We are looking at what I believe some of the most important words in the scripture ever written. Today, you see, we're going to continue in our study of Acts as was just prayed a moment ago, and we're going to learn about, we're going to see the birth of the church. We're going to hear about the giving of the Holy Spirit by God and, and the power that we need to reach this world with the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to chapter 2 in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 13. It's something I haven't done in quite a long time but I think it's really important that everyone understands that we have note sheets every week there as you come in the door here. And today I think it'll be exceptionally helpful if you have one of these. We're going to be covering quite a bit of material here today on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then on the back there are notes for you to take and apply the things that we are looking at throughout the week. And so I can't encourage you more to pick up one of these note sheets and to follow along collect the uh, thoughts that we'll be sharing here today, and then to think about them and pray about them, even as Tom reminded us of meditating on how great and how awesome our God is. As you are turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, let me begin by reminding you that I hope you will recall from last week's sermon from Pastor Mike that it, it would be impossible, utterly impossible, to explain the progression of the gospel and the church apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. He is indeed the leading, he has the leading role in the book of Acts. And for this reason, many scholars have suggested that while the full title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, it could just as well be accurately the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. I want to remind you as we're talking about the Holy Spirit today, that very same Spirit and dwells in us, empowers us as believers today to expand God's kingdom and to spread the gospel into the hearts of people throughout this world. The bottom line is we're going to be reminded today that without the Holy Spirit, we are unable to accomplish anything of really eternal value. And so with these opening thoughts in mind today, some of you will recall, I hope from last week's study of chapter 1, that after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days proving that he was alive. And at the end of those 40 days, he led his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, he gave some final instructions about the kingdom of God. And then he commanded them to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And amazingly, as he began to finish up that discussion, the scriptures talk about why they were still looking at him, he began to ascend back into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father to this day. With the continuing work of Christ on earth now entrusted to his disciples, the promise of the Holy Spirit's arrival coming, we are able to jump into chapter 2. Okay, In chapter 2, 10 days have passed since Jesus' ascension. And we find that the disciples have all huddled together, gathered together, about 120 of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, and they are there praying with one accord continuously. Let's look and see what God does next. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read the whole thing and then go back and analyze it. Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came running and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they were astonished. Are not these men who are speaking Galileans, they said? And how is it that we hear each of us in their own language, his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Amalites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, all were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying this, they are filled with new wine. This, my friends, is the word of, of the Lord. I want you to observe here that when the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers in Pentecost, it was not a quiet moment. It was a momentous moment, powerful moment, and it was accompanied by three supernatural phenomena. First, if you're taking notes, there was an audible phenomenon. Suddenly, we're told in Scripture, a sound like a violent wind came from heaven and that it filled through the house where the men and women were gathered. This was followed by a visual phenomenon. When, and, and we're talking here about flames shaped like tongues of fire appearing and settling on each of them that were sitting there and praying. And when that third thing happened, and, and that, that, that's when third, a verbal phenomenon occurred. You see, as these, these tongue-like uh, objects began landing on these believers and settled on them, they began to speak in tongues. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to do so. At this time, we're told that there were devout men, Jews, from every nation who had gathered in Jerusalem. They were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. And when they heard this loud noise, everyone came running. And they were completely amazed to hear in their own languages being spoken by these believers. Clearly, this was not something that the disciples could have accomplished on their own without months, if not years, of study. Is it any wonder then that according to verse 12, that these devout men from every nation find themselves amazed. They are perplexed and they're asking each other, what does this mean? And really, folks, that is a question that I believe persists today. What does Pentecost mean? And that's what I hope to answer today. What's the significance of that? And I believe the answer to that question, in order to understand it correctly, it must be interpreted in light of the context of Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. It was there, you see, that the risen Lord instructed his disciples, if you remember, to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, namely the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
just as the ministry of Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit descending on him at his baptism, now the ministry of the disciples depended on receiving the Holy Spirit and they're relying on his power to do their ministry. While they had experienced a measure of the Holy Spirit's prior, power prior to Pentecost, now what we see the difference is this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was now dwelling in them permanently. And thus the meaning of Acts, if we were to start out with a foundation, the meaning of Pentecost must be interpreted in my understanding of scriptures as a special one-time event in history when God is equipping his church, the birth of the church, equipping them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that his glory would be spread among the nations. And as we look here at Acts chapter 2, Luke, we'll see, presents four practical truths to make that a reality. God's plan is brought out here on how he wishes to have his glory spread to the nation through the gospel, and it asks, what is our role in that objective, okay? Now, what you might be thinking here, does the connection between God's glory and the gospel have to do with one another? Well, if you think about it, through the actions of the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I believe we see the character and the glory of God more clearly than likely any other act in history. And so we're asking today, what was God's plan to spread his glory, the good news of the gospel, to the nations? And what part do we have in God's plan to make that objective a reality? And I got four thoughts. Here we go. If you're taking notes, first we see God's plan to spread his glory to the nations is through his church. It is through his church. That being noted, I do not believe that it was any coincidence that God chose to pour out his spirit on his disciples on the day of Pentecost. If you go back into the Old Testament, you will quickly discover that Pentecost was one of three major Jewish festivals called a pilgrim festival. It is called a pilgrim festival because all Jewish males at the time that the Bible was written were required to come to Jerusalem at the temple to observe that festival. Only they didn't call it Pentecost at the time, the Greek name this Pentecost, which means 50, and that name is given here to this feast because it was celebrated seven weeks or 50 days after Pentecost. According to Leviticus chapter 23, the Jews called it rather the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Weeks. And this feast was a joyous time for the people of Israel. They brought their first fruits of the New Year's harvest to the temple, and they were thanking God for his mighty provisions. And it symbolized their faith and their trust in God that he had more harvests to come. And if you think about it, as we look at the content of Acts 2 this week and next week, these new believers in Jerusalem, this church on this historical day, is the first fruits of a great harvest that is just beginning, okay? Just as he promised, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to his followers, and he came in this amazing way. Not just, mind you, to the leaders of the church, to the most faithful, but the Holy Spirit came upon and took up permanent residence in every believer in that home that was praying. And now guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit, members of Christ's church, his body, will continue to bear witness in word and deed, and that is so important, not just word, not just deed, but in word and deed to share the truth of Jesus being alive in us until our Savior returns. What an awesome 
privilege we have, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Witnessing, as Mike reminded us last week, is an all-of-life kind of thing because following Christ encompasses all of life. Witnessing is an all-in-life kind of thing because following Christ encompasses all in life, okay? In our homes, in our offices, in our classroom students, in our neighborhoods, in our online chats and interactions, in every square inch, as Pastor Mike reminded us, to the ends of this earth, we are to be witnesses until our Savior returns, And that brings me to the second point I want to share from our biblical text. You see, the scope of God's plan is to spread his glory to all nations, to all nations. Think about it. Why does Luke go to such a long and tedious process of listing all these nations here in verses 9 and 11? If you look at this map, you'll see if you start looking at the names, this list of 15 nations appears there, and it moves from east to west, then from north to south, and encompasses three continents. And I think the key in our passage is verse 5, because it says it represents devout men from every nation under heaven. They were devout men, meaning they had feared God. It's obvious by the fact that they had come on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that they had a respect and a fear for God for this feast, but they had not yet come to realize the Messiah had come to be crucified, buried, and raised again as a substitute to deliver them personally from their sins, which Peter will abundantly share in a very short time next week in his opening sermon. This list also reminded me as I was reading it of the list of the nations in Genesis 11, which led to the building of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, plain and simple, was an act of rebellion against God. You remember in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his sons, after the global flood, God commanded them, remember, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But fueled by pride, we find the people at that time uh, wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a city that all would think about how awesome with this high tower they were. That enabled them to remain in defiance and and, and direct obedience to God's command. So what did God do? Well, you'll recall that God in his mercy, not by destruction, which he had done during the flood, but he confused their languages. Without a common language, the people who had been so stubborn about staying together were now unable to understand each other, and thus construction of that city ceased. But here in Acts 2, we kind of have a reversal. God turned the original confusion of languages into a miracle, supernatural speech here, resulting in incredible worldwide blessing. These earlier witnesses, you see, supernaturally empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit. They spoke a real language, unknown to them, but understood by the hearers. And that's actually a great description if you're taking notes, and we'll be dealing with a lot of these terms throughout the book, but that's a great description, as I understand it, of the gift of tongues. Biblical tongues is the supernatural ability to speak an existing earthly language, which was previously unknown to them, but understood by the hearers. I'll keep that up for just a moment. But notice, they did not speak ecstatic utterances. They spoke non uh, they spoke existing earthly languages. 
In other words, this is not a miracle of hearing, but rather a miracle of speaking. And the reason is so clear as you look at the text here. This miracle enabled the church to be launched in all these places with these men when they returned to their homes. And here's the thing. It is a a one-of-a-kind kind of thing. Since that time, missionaries have had, had to struggle to learn languages in the places they go. I know that's personally true as I've worked here with the Chinese. I'd love to be able to just go like that and be able to speak Chinese or, or Flemish. The point of this, though, is, that, is really that God's good news is meant for all nations. And this is the way he provided for that good news and his glory to spread. But how can it be possibly... How can it be possible that we fulfill what God is saying here? And that brings me to the third point in our biblical text. And that is this. The necessary power to spread God's glory to all the nations is the Holy Spirit. The necessary power to spread God's glory to all the nations is the Holy Spirit. You know, I once heard a funny story. And as a pastor, I can relate to this. Every one of us has to have that first time in the pulpit. And I read this story about a young monk who was called to preach his very first sermon in the monastery. Frightened, intimidated, he, 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 he got up in the pulpit and he opened with this question. How many of you know what I'm going to say? When no one raised their hand, he timidly admitted, well, I don't either. You are dismissed. May the Lord bless you. <laughs> I won't try that here, I promise. Of course, his superiors would not let him off the hook with that kind of a response. And so a week later, here he goes right back into the pulpit on the platform. And to everyone's surprise, he asked the same question. How many of you know what I am going to say? And this time, the brothers were determined to teach this boy a lesson. And so everyone presented raised their hand. Courageously, this young monk smiled. And he said, well, since you already know what I'm going to say, you don't need to hear the sermon. The Lord bless you. (laughs) After a very severe reprimand, the young monk ascended to the stairs or the platform yet a third time. And slowly but very deliberately, he astonished his audience with the now traditional question. How many of you know what I am about to say? And to completely unbalance this clever Amateur, half the brothers raised their hand and half did not. Well, said the young monk, those of you who know what I'm about to say, tell those who don't know what I'm saying. Once again, he dismissed them with the Lord bless you. You know, we laugh, but how many of us are like this clever monk, afraid in fear of of talking to people about Jesus, about Jesus? I'm so encouraged as I read this text. You see, because while I'm in no means uh, excusing a believer knowing the scriptures and properly and prayerfully preparing ourselves to share the good news of the gospel, I believe our our biblical text, by their response to these, these folks here, clearly demonstrates that we do not need to be trained theologians to tell others about Jesus. Acts 1 8 is a promise from Jesus himself. That because of the presence, because of the power that resides now in every believer permanently, we will never be left alone or empty-handed when we're sharing the truth of God's love and sacrifice for others. Let me also remind you of a verse that really impacted my life because I'm a bit fearful when it comes to standing up and talking in front of people or sharing my faith. 
2 Timothy 1.7. Here's what it says. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as we obediently fulfill the role of being a witness, let us do so with a heart of prayer for those that we are sharing with and for our words to be guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit in love and in the power he gives us. Now you might be thinking, so who is the Holy Spirit? And I want to take just a little bit of time because as I mentioned earlier, this book is filled with a great deal about the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let me just lay some foundational truths here. First, let me assure you that our Holy, the Holy Spirit is not just a force, okay? He is the third person of the Trinity. We know he is a personal being because we're warned in Ephesians 4 verse 30 that he can be grieved. And folks, you cannot grieve an impersonal force. We also know clearly from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God. And one of the clearest demonstrations that I think is in Acts 5.4, which we'll get to later, when Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit, and then he adds these words, you have not lied to men, but to God. You know, you should also know when we talk about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit didn't just appear for the first time at Pentecost. We've seen, we see him throughout the scriptures. And even before the day of Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit was empowering people for serving God. Only, however, temporary, not permanently, as he's going to do now. In contrast to the day of Pentecost, the disciples were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And they are now permanently indwelt, just as Jesus promised would happen in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In fact... Romans 8 9 tells us this, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not even belong to him. That's pretty powerful words. Now that being noted, this might be a good time to provide you with some definitions and distinctions about some of the other ministries that we see here of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 and 2. And, and we see them repeatedly throughout the book. So if you don't get it today, we're going to keep walking through this book and trying to develop our understanding of it. I'll begin with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, at first glance, it could appear here that speaking in tongues is the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If this were the only passage of Scripture that talked about this subject, that might be true, but I don't believe it is. To see what I mean, take a look carefully at the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Look at what it says. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now that Greek word translated baptism here has a meaning that is both literal and figurative. The word literally means to submerge, to dunk, okay? But figuratively, it means to be identified or connected to. And I believe that's the emphasis here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. It's a figurative emphasis. This promise was first fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and hereafter, it affects every believer who places their trust in Christ by permanently joining them or identifying them with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his body. That's what baptism of the Holy Spirit truly is all about. In fact, let me give you a quick definition. The work of the Spirit of God, it's the work of the Spirit of God whereby he places a believing sinner 
into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ, listen, at the moment of salvation. I say that so strongly because nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's because it is an action performed by God without asking at the moment of salvation for every believer. Still, some will argue that the sign of being baptized with the Spirit is speaking in tongues and that if you have not done that, you might be lacking some spiritual experience. Let me give you a few reasons why I am convinced that that thinking is unbiblical. First, on a very practical note, this thinking sets up two classes of Christianity, distinguishing between those who have spoken in tongues and those who have not. And folks, I've looked carefully over the scriptures and I cannot find anywhere in the New Testament that makes that kind of classification. Second, the New Testament contains no accounts of believers seeking the experience of speaking in tongues. Even in the episodes here in Acts, that some of the believers will cite as support for that position. The act of speaking in tongues just happens, okay? No one is looking for it, not even the disciples here in a sense. Third, looking back at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, allow me to point out some key words, the key words, we were all baptized into one body, okay? When you compare that with what he writes, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 30, He's instructing the same congregation. I want to make a note here. Look at what Paul writes. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All are not, and all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? I believe that a negative answer is the obvious required answer to each one of those questions. And therefore, according to the Bible, even though every Christian, did you miss that in 1 Corinthians? Don't miss that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Every Christian is baptized by the Holy Spirit. It was never intended, as I understand Scripture, that all Christians speak in tongues. Logically, speaking in tongues cannot be the same, therefore, as baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's one more important distinction that I need to make here regarding the ministries of the Holy Spirit written in our text here. It is by far one of the most important ministries that we will experience as a believer. Notice here there is a difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. All genuine believers, as I hope I pointed out from Scripture, are noted earlier, have the Holy Spirit dwelling permanently within us. But not all believers live filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit's power. How do I know that? Well, look at the command that Paul presents in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Notice he says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as wine influences our thoughts, our words, our thinking, our actions, Paul also declares here the Holy Spirit should be free as we surrender our life to him to conform our thoughts, our words, and our actions to be more and more like Jesus. Of course, that is a process. Nobody gets that all at once, right? We're all growing. We're all under construction. 
And so the bottom line is we, were, we, are, in, we are forever indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But as I look at this scripture here, this command, we are filled, we are controlled by the Holy Spirit only as we depend and rely and submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit each and every moment, every day. So that's my definition. Here it is. To be filled by the Holy Spirit is to be under the influence or the control of the Holy Spirit. And, and some Christians describe this distinction by saying this. It's very meaningful if you let the word sink in. Believers have all of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit may not have all of them. That's really powerful. Believers have all of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit may not have all of them. I came across a prayer by Andrew Murray sometime back, and it fits so well here. Look at what this prayer is. May not a single moment of my life be spent outside the light, the love, and joy of God's presence, and not a moment without the entire surrender, that's a key word, of myself as a vessel for him to fill full of his spirit and his love. Amen? Wrapping up this portion of my sermon on the person and the work of the ministry here of the Holy Spirit, let me say here that when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I know as I stand here, there are many faithful believers in Jesus who disagree about how these gifts work and function within the church today. But the truth is the gifts of healing and prophecy and tongues and miracles and apostleship, all these uh, supernatural gifts were never meant to be an evidence in my heart, as I see it, of the Spirit in us. Like the Apostle Paul commends us in the church of Corinth, the, the presence or the power of the Holy Spirit is, an, is evidenced in our lives through our transformation to be more like Jesus. I'm talking about a miraculous love for one another. I'm talking about a pursuit of holiness in how we live and prioritize our lives for God's glory a passion to tell people about Jesus. We are his witnesses, right? And in our encouraging and spurring one another to follow Jesus in every, with everything we got. That's what I understand the filling of the Holy Spirit is all about, truthfully. Looking now one final time at our text, specifically verses 12 and 13, I want you to see that um, those who witnessed the supernatural speaking of tongues, not all responded positively. And we're going to see that the response to the gospel throughout the book of Acts varies. The book of Acts is both a record of, of mighty conversions, but we're also going to see fierce opposition to the preaching of the gospel. And that's my fourth point here today. You see, God's plan to spread his glory to the nations will often be met with fierce opposition. It will often be met with fierce opposition. Why, after all, would the evil one bother Christians who are in any kind of threat to his purposes and his domain? If, however, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are passionate for Jesus about fulfilling this mission of being his witnesses, we can and we should expect resistance. We should be surprised that we're not, honestly, because the scriptures tell us that's what we should expect. In conclusion here, of all these thoughts here, I want to talk about this meaning of Pentecost in our own lives and in our ministries. And I've got, I've got a few thoughts I want to share with you, and I want to do so in the form of questions. And by the way, all these questions are on your application here. 
in, in what's next. And I hope you'll take some time to think about them as I did this week. Here goes. First, we've learned today that the church is God's means of taking the gospel to the, to the nations, resulting in his glory being spread through all the earth. Folks, when we share, when we bear witness of how God has rescued us from our sin and from death through Jesus, it gives others the opportunity to know God and know what he can do for them. But to be effective in our witness, we need to remember to be that a witness that God intends, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask you these questions. First, how is the Holy Spirit's presence affecting your everyday life and witness for Jesus. Not that it can happen, because it won't. And I've really thought about this. This is the most convicting questions of my own heart here. Would we have missed him if he had withdrawn from us this past week? The Holy Spirit's powerful indwelling is an incredible, amazing gift. And I would ask all of us to think, are we taking this gift to lightly. Second, I think it's significant that the book of Acts possesses an open-ended conclusion. We're going to see that. To me, that clearly indicates, as Mike so strongly pointed out last week, the church's mission to proclaim the gospel is to continue until Jesus comes, and we are by far finished or completed with that mission. As his witnesses, we must therefore speak and live so what others will, will, will glorify him when they hear the message and see our faith in action. So let me pause here and ask. Is it true of you and me that we have a desire, a genuine desire to bear witness of Christ to those who are lost and perishing? And on the other side of that, because I don't want to discount the responsibility of proper preparation for believers. What are we doing are we seriously preparing to share Christ through the diligent study of scriptures, through memorizing scripture, praying for God-given opportunities to share with those who, have, who God prepares for us to share the good news of salvation with? And finally, third, in a way, this actually fits with the overall theme that we've chosen for the book. I think it's important from this text that we are reminded again that God is a God who works miracles, and wonders. I like what Tom reminded us of this week. When was the last time we really focused on, on how awesome our God is? And so tell me, Chantilly Bible Church, I'm speaking to myself as well, do you, do I expect awesome things to happen in our lives and in our church today? I certainly hope so. I'm praying for that. How about you? These applications are what I take to be from the meaning of Pentecost to you and me and Chantilly Bible Church, and I hope they will bless your heart. Today, as we conclude our corporate worship together, I'm so excited and so pleased to share with you that we will be installing Pastor Mike McCullough as a new elder here at Chantilly Bible Church. As Pastor Mike and the existing elders that are in the room come forward, uh, allow me to acknowledge that the call of being an elder is a high calling. It is not something to be entered into lightly. Another thing that occurred to me as I was preparing for this time of Mike's installation is that in a very real sense, we don't make elders. Jesus raises them up and gives them to us. 
Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 remind us that Jesus gave shepherds and elders to equip the body for the ministry. Likewise, in Acts chapter 20, it points out that elders are men whom the Holy Spirit identifies and raises up as overseers to care for the church of God, which blows my mind, he obtained with his own blood. And so when we look for elders, we are looking for men whom God raised up clearly through his spirit. We're looking for men who have demonstrated and uh, a great love and for God's word and, and the handling of it. We're looking for people who have a passionate heart for leading and equipping, sharing and modeling Jesus Christ. And today, as the men make their way over here and we lay hands on Pastor Mike, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless Mike and his family as he steps into the role of our eldership here at Chantilly Bible Church. What we're doing here is publicly acknowledging that we have observed Jesus in the life, the heart, the family, and the teaching of Mike McCullough. Simply, we're just affirming publicly that we clearly believe this man is set apart by God for serving in the leadership of our church body. So would you bow your heads with me and join the elders in praying here? I can't get near you, Mike. <laughs> I told Mike the first time they, they prayed for me, they prayed so long I couldn't stand up. I wouldn't do that to him. So let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here today to witness and participate in this installation of Pastor Mike as a new elder of Chantilly Bible Church, we, we want to humbly acknowledge, Lord, that this process was initiated by you alone and that we are merely recognizing and affirming your sovereign work here. For this is your church and you have called it into being. We praise you and thank you that you have chosen Pastor Mike to be a part of our shepherding and our church body here. And we ask, Lord, that we would be faithful in our prayers, our support and respect for Pastor Mike and Aaron and their children as Mike seeks to faithfully discharge his duties to your glory and for the good of our church family. As Pastor Mike assumes his new role and responsibilities, Lord, would you please fill him and all of our elders with your spirit. Endow us, Lord, with your wisdom and grant us your strength. And together as we seek to follow you, Lord, would you help us more passionately to undertake the task that we've been reminded of here today to proclaim your glory in our Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the world. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.